0: In this session, we cover the relationship of the doctrine of sanctification to Old and New Covenants. By way of observation, I think it is fair to say that dispensationalists are not creedal in the sense that covenant theologians are. In other words, dispensationalism does not have a concise, definitive standard such as the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Canons of Dort. And I think that's the reason, and this is just a personal observation, I think that's the reason that dispensationalists have a tendency to be far more flexible in their ability to listen and think than those who are of a covenant theology bent. Uh, Dispensationalists don't feel nearly as threatened by something new as a covenant theologian does, if he has a total rigid system where you pull one block out, the whole thing collapses. And I think that's why you, you have this. Uh, every dispensationalist, I, I, I don't know hardly any dispensationalist that I've ever met who call covenant theologians legalists. And yet nearly every covenant theologian I know calls dispensationalists antinomians. That's just automatic. And I think it's because of this rigidity. Among true, knowledgeable Calvinists, I think the dispensational Calvinists, that is those who are thorough Calvinists, I think they have a tendency to understand covenant theology far better than the classical covenant, theologist under, uh, ca- covenant theologian understands dispensationalism. Uh, That comes out pretty clear in this book. If you read this book, Continuity and Discontinuity, you, you will find the one group really has a better grasp of what both are saying, and the covenant theologian has a tend to use stereotypes and even sometimes caricatures. However, that's all extra. It doesn't count. Now, again, I want to emphasize the importance of the subject that we are covering and again, I'll quote from this book by a man named Rodney Patterson. And uh, he emphasizes this. The first question in the interpretation of Scripture for the Christian after acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus Christ is how to relate the Hebrew Scriptures to the New Testament. Many of the divisions between Christian churches arise from differing ways of understanding this relationship. And I think he is dead right. Such was the case in the early years of the church. It was an issue during the Reformation as well as in later and more recent periods of church renewal. Our question was Philip's question to the Ethiopian eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And of course somebody says, look, I read the Bible. It means what it says, and I believe it means what it says, and that ends it. There goes my bacon. (laughs) and my ham with my eggs right out the window, you see. Uh, It was that of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We might reformulate it today. For example, is the AIDS health crisis a plague brought upon modern society by a wrathful God? Now, See, if you lived prior to the coming of Christ, there's no question how you would answer this. Does the cry for freedom and justice by the black population of South Africa have similarities with that of the Hebrews under Egyptian tyranny? Or does Israel have a prophetic right to Palestine that excludes full franchise of the Arab population? Philip's answer to the, to, was to point the Ethiopian to Christ, and so he goes on. But I think he points out the, the question that whether we like it or not, Every one of us has a method of relating the Hebrew Scriptures to our personal life and to the church, and that's one of the primary differences and creates all kinds of problems. Again, in uh, another page, uh, another writer emphasizes it from a totally different point of view, but basically says the same thing. The relation of the Testaments has occasioned much debate throughout church history. Whether one sees more continuity or more discontinuity will become evident at various points in everyone's theological system. No theological system can escape addressing this issue either explicitly or implicitly. And again, I think he has stated it correctly. What's happened in our generation is theonomy has forced us, whether we like it or not, to once again deal seriously with the Old Testament scriptures. And it was almost as if the church forgot that she had a Old Testament scriptures until Theonomy came along and forced us to evaluate this because they would like to make this to be the rule of the land. I think it is safe to observe, as several people have observed in this particular book, that The more you emphasize the continuity between the old and the new, the more you'll move towards covenant theology. And the more you emphasize the discontinuity between the two, the more you'll move towards uh, dispensationalism. Now, there is no question to anybody who's ever read the Scriptures once that there is a specific relationship between the Old and the New Covenants as it relates to justification and as it relates to sanctification. There is no question that Israel and the church and the way God has dealt with Israel and the church are definitely related as it pertains to sanctification. Take your Bible and look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and the book of Leviticus chapter 1. First Peter, Chapter One, and the Book of Leviticus, Chapter Nineteen. All right, First Peter, Chapter One, verse fifteen and sixteen. But as he which hath called you is holy, be ye holy in all manner of life. And how does he prove this? Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And Peter is quoting from the book of Leviticus. Now, if that doesn't tie the old and the new together in some way... (laughs) then then I can't read because Peter is saying you are to be holy in all manner of life. And he uses the book of Leviticus to reinforce this and to prove this. In the book of Leviticus chapter 19, the whole chapter over and over uses this phrase, for I am the Lord, I am the Lord your God, be ye holy, for I am holy. He starts out in the very first verse, and the Lord said unto Moses, speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And Peter quotes that verse to enforce upon you and me the necessity of being holy. And you read the verses, go over to the book of Leviticus chapter 11, the same thing, the book of Leviticus chapter 11, beginning to read at verse 41. And every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth shall be an abomination, it shall not be eaten. Whatsoever goeth upon the belly, and whatsoever goeth upon all four, or whatsoever hath more feet than all creeping things that creep upon the earth, them you shall not eat, for they an abomination. You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping things that creepeth, neither shall you make yourselves unclean with them, you shall that you should be defiled thereby, for I, the Lord your God, for I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy, and so on. And so Peter is using these two passages to teach the necessity of sanctification in all of the Christian's life. And if you want to go back and look at verse 19, or chapter 19 again, Look at verse 4, turn you not unto idols, for I am the Lord. Verse 12, for I am the Lord. And he keeps saying this over and over again. Now, here are the questions. Did God command both Israel and the church to be holy? Absolutely. Secondly, does Peter use Leviticus 11 and 19 to prove that we as Christians should be holy or that we should be sanctified? And again, the answer is yes. And is the reason in both cases identical? Yes. Because God is holy, Israel, you be holy. Christian, because God is holy and demanded Israel to be holy, you must be holy. Now here comes the $2064 question. Does the fact that Peter quotes the book of Leviticus to show the necessity of the Christian being holy, does that mean that I as a Christian can go back to the book of Leviticus and read all of those things and learn how I am to live my day-to-day life so that I can be holy? Do you see what I'm saying? Now see, that to me is one of the fallacies of the hermeneutical uh, principle once the law is in effect, it's always in effect, and this continuity, I think you should be able to do that because that's what they want us to do in other things. They want us to use this same method to go back to the Old Testament. Now, somebody says, yeah, but wait a minute, there's, there's a difference here. You've got to separate the civil from the ceremonial and so on. <laughs> How do I do that? What hermeneutical principles do I have in the scriptures that teaches me how to separate the laws that I am obey in order to be holy? Because there's nothing in what Peter says that says, now go back to what Leviticus says and pick out the moral parts and observe them, disregard the ceremonial parts and don't observe them. He doesn't say that. He just says, be holy, and quotes the book of Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 19. Now, now one of the principles, hermeneutical principles in sanctification and in all understanding of Scripture is this. Once a law is in force, it's always in force unless later revelation specifically stops it, and that is continuity. And see, we would say, no, no, that which determines whether a law is in force is the covenant under which that law was given and the dispensation in which that law was given. And, of course, we will have names thrown at us if we do that. Now, take infant baptism. I don't know if you've ever discussed infant baptism with somebody who really knows and understands why people baptize babies. And if you ever have, you will start off this way. You will say, well, where does the New Testament ever command a baby to be baptized? And the man will smile, and he'll say, it doesn't. And you say, wow, this is going to be an easy discussion. (laughs) And then you say, where does the New Testament give a specific instance of a baby being baptized? And again, he smiles and says, it doesn't. And you feel like saying, what are you smiling about? Because you just totally lost the argument. And you think the argument is over. And then he begins to tell you why he baptizes babies. Now, he will say no. If he understands his position, he will say no when you ask him if there are any clear instances in the New Testament. Now, later on, he'll come back after you run him up a tree. Then he'll go back and try to use the household baptisms in the New Testament. But he doesn't do that in the beginning if he understands his position. And, of course, you know how to handle the household baptisms like the Anabaptists did with the Lutheran. And the Lutheran said to the Anabaptists, surely you believe there must have been at least one wee baby in that Philippian jailer's household. And the Anabaptist says, no, the youngest child in that household was a 16-year-old boy. And the Lutheran got his Bible and opened it to Acts 16, and he says, sir, show me the verse where that, 12-year- so where that 16-year-old boy is. And the Anabaptist says, it's in the same verse with that wee baby you're talking about. LAUGHTER Now, now learn something from the wisdom of that Anabaptist. In any discussion, whether it's theological, philosophical, or even with your wife, (laughs) it is not my responsibility to prove something isn't there. I don't have to prove that there aren't any babies. If you're going to use the passage to teach infant baptism, it's solely 100% your responsibility to prove there were babies there. I don't have to prove they weren't, and that's what this argument reduces to when you talk to it. So anyhow, you think the argument's over, the guy's standing there grinning because he's admitted there is no New Testament commandment and there is no New Testament example. And so he says, well, now, Mr. singer, you do believe in the unity of the Scriptures, don't you? And I would say yes. And then he would say, well, you do believe that the unity of the scriptures means the unity of the covenants, that there's one covenant with two administrations? And I would say no, but a lot of my friends would say yes. And the moment you say yes to that question, you've given away the chickens in the chicken house. And it's only a matter of time until you're going to be up a tree. Somebody told me that last year at the conference down in... Florida, I think it was Dr. Sproul's conference, that somebody had given quite a statement on believers' baptism, and then they had a short discussion or debate or something, and Dr. Sproul says, you do believe in one covenant with two administrations? And the man who made the statement said, yes, and within 15 minutes, Sproul had him up a tree. It was pathetic. Now, my friend is going to say, okay, you believe in the unity of the scriptures, and if I say I also believe in the one covenant of grace, then he's saying, and you also believe there's one people of God under this one covenant. And covenant theology says, yes, we believe that. Well, are the children in the old administration of this covenant, were the children signed and sealed with the sign of that covenant to prove they were under this covenant? Yes. Are Christians under this same covenant? Yes. Yes. Well, if this is one covenant and the children are in this one covenant back here, you show me in the New Testament scriptures where God has commanded you to stop signing and sealing the children of the covenant. He got you over a barrel. You see? It's your job now to prove the children are long, no longer in the covenant if you have agreed that they were in the covenant. Are you with me here? You out there? Can you see the logic of this? And if you take that first step and acknowledge one covenant, two administrations, you'll wind up buying a font. <laughs> now, if you, if you don't believe what I'm saying here, I have never met yet a Pado baptist pastor who was converted... To being a Baptist by all of the rhetoric of all the Reformed Baptists put together. Now you may know some. I've never met one. But I know hundreds of young Reformed Baptist men who became Presbyterians. Because they have no polemic. Because they do not understand the relationship of the old covenant to the new covenant. Now this one once a law is given, it must be specifically rescinded in later revelation is a good and necessary consequence to this one covenant, two administrations. As I mentioned, interim baptism, you do the same thing with the Sabbath. You can do the same thing with a whole lot of rules and regulations. The theonomist would do that same thing with a whole lot more things. Now, even if this idea that we are forced to think about all the time, the law of God is divided up into moral, civil, and ceremonial. Even if that were true, it still doesn't answer the question. There is no question that in the Old Testament Scriptures under the Old Covenant, there were laws which were moral in nature, there are laws which are ceremonial in nature, there are laws which are civil in nature. Nobody discusses that. The question is, are there codes of law that can be put together and labeled moral law? The Decalogue, this is the moral law, unchanging moral law. Over here is another code, another list. They're ceremonial laws. These are civil laws. And this code is gone. This code is gone. This code is still here. That's the question that we're talking about. Go back to Leviticus chapter 19 and let's see if we can... Learn how to do this. Leviticus 16 Leviticus 19, beginning at verse 16, "Thou shalt not go up and down as a tailbearer among the people, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord." Well, that would, I think, be a moral law. wouldn't you say that? "Thou shalt not hate thy neighbor in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Well, we could put that on the moral list. Verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Well, that's definitely moral. We don't have any question about that because our Lord in the New Testament says that's the second greatest commandment in the Scriptures. If you ever want to have fun with a group of Christians... Take that passage where Jesus said, this is the first and great commandment, and quoted Deuteronomy, and the second commandment, and he quoted this verse, and asked a group of Christians, which two commandments was Jesus talking about? And usually they will say the first one, (laughs) and they don't realize that he's not talking about any of the Ten Commandments. And, And we are presented as if here is the Ten Commandments up here, and then everything hangs on the Ten Commandments, And the Ten Commandments are a summary of the whole duty of God. Uh, Mr. Zaspel has done an excellent job on this to show that it's not, the Ten Commandments are not this and then everything's under this, but rather the Ten Commandments is under another law of God, which is far greater than this. And and he's done an excellent job on that. He has a paper coming out, which I hope gets put into a booklet form and about 10,000 are distributed. Excellent piece of work. All right, now there's no question that this is a moral commandment. Verse 18, or verse 19, Now, this is right after thou shalt love thy neighbors yourself. The very next verse, you shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed, neither shall a garment mingled of linen and wool come upon you. Now, where would you put that? Well, you say, no question, that's ceremonial. But what I ask is, what hermeneutical principle do you get out of the scriptures that gives you the right to say verse 20 is binding, or rather verse 18 is binding, but verse 19 isn't? I mean, who gives us authority to pick this one and say this one is still in effect and this one is not in effect when it's all in the same context? And verse 20, whosoever lieth carnally with a woman that is a bondmaid, betrothed to a husband, and not at all redeemed nor freedom given her, she shall be scourged. They shall not be put to death because she's not free. You know, I get very perturbed with feminists who get tough on the Apostle Paul. I think that Paul ought to be the feminist patron saint. If ever there was somebody who liberated women and brought them freedom, it was the Apostle Paul. Paul. And if you want to talk about equality of the covenants, I'll tell you, women under the old covenant was not equal in the sense, in any sense, even close to what they are today. Here, this idea of freedom, just because of slavery, and there was a, couldn't be punished with death. So it's amazing. But we'd put this one on the moral list. Down to verse 26. You should not eat anything with blood, neither shall you use enchantments, nor observe times. Then right next to it, you should not round the corners of your beard or your head, neither shall you mar the corners of your beard. You should not make any cuttings in your flesh or paint marks upon you, tattoos. Do not prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a whore. And right alongside of cutting your beard is turning your daughter into a prostitute. Now, if 2 Timothy which says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for instruction and in righteousness and reproof and so on, should I be able to use any of these verses as a memory verse in Sunday school? And teach something about doctrine and something about righteousness. So even if you could divide these things up into this list, you still can't just dismiss one list and say, well, we're done with that, we don't have to worry about that. No, no, we've got to be able to use that as part of the Word of God that's profitable for doctrine and for teaching. Do you understand what I'm saying? No question we can use, <laughs> i should love your neighbor as yourself as a memory verse, and teach a whole Sunday school lesson on it, in fact, a whole series of Sunday school lessons on it. Should we also be able to teach verse 19. Don't mix cattle and so on. Should we be able to say, what was God teaching? And what do I learn from that today? And I think if we understand the scriptures covenantally and also dispensationally, I think we should be able to do that. And we ought to be able to start off and say, an Israelite was to live a holy, sanctified life. And that holy, sanctified life was demonstrated, which demonstrated his love to God and proved that he loved righteousness, was following exactly what was told to him. And to him, cutting his beard or not cutting his beard was just as moral and just as important as loving his neighbor as himself and not prostituting his daughter. It was one ball of wax. And he demonstrated his holiness and his love to God by keeping these things. But that immediately alerts us to say, wait a minute, the definition of righteousness and the definition of how to live a sanctified life is radically different for a Jew under the old covenant than it is for a Christian under the new covenant. In both cases, he's commanded to be holy. But because this New Testament writer references him back here as the reason, he can't go back there and say, okay, I know how to be holy. I don't mix cotton and wool. I don't plant radishes and carrots in the same field. And if you don't think anybody thinks about this, talk to David Frampton. They were having devotions in their family reading this. I think it was David. Was that you, David? David. And this was one of your sons said, Daddy, did we sin when we planted garden, peas and corn in the same, <laughs> same row? Now, in First Peter, he can apply the principle without taking any of the specifics. And you can have true unity. I think the same principle is true. When we come to Acts chapter 2 and... and, and Peter says, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. Older dispensationalists tried to do away with that altogether. And then the covenant theologian, he goes to the opposite extreme. And he says, okay, I have a principle here that, that enables me to understand the whole Old Testament scriptures. And he goes back to the book of Joel and say, everything in the book of Joel is fulfilled. And by extension, everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled. But all Peter's doing is pointing to one text and one event and says, this is that. That's as far as you can go. That's as far as you can go with Peter when he says, it is written. You can't say all of Leviticus is written for me to learn how to live. But the principle is there. Now, I think the covenant terms under which one lives is the thing that defines righteousness and sanctification for that individual. And the moment we say that, we can say, you can see how impossible this is for a covenant theologian because he only has one covenant with two administrations and only one canon of conduct. So this idea that the law is always in effect unless later rescinded is not really sufficient. Now, the second method that we can use to relate the old to the new is the exact opposite of that. And it says nothing... In the whole old covenant, none of the laws, none of the rules, are in effect unless they are repeated in the New covenant scriptures. And I, I know some people who say that, and I was very tempted to do that when I first started to understand this myself, but it is fraught with problems. It's fine when you come to Leviticus 19:19, 19, 19, "Love your neighbors yourself." There's no problem at all. but what about such things as bestiality? And the theonomists, they throw this at us all the time. One theonomist asked a professor from one school, is bestiality a sin today? And he says, where is it in the new covenant? He says, it's not in it. And the man foolishly says, well, then I guess it's not a sin. Well, you see, that you'd be driven to that if you took this view, and I think that's nonsense. When we emphasize that the Christian begins his ethics with the cross in the New Testament, we are not saying we're starting at ground zero. We are building on what is already in place. Progressive revelation is not the same as saying we have two Bibles and we've thrown this Bible out. There are two distinct canons of conduct. There are two canons of behavior that teach us how to be righteous. But they don't contradict each other in the sense that this is saying, that one's wrong, it's no good. It is building on it and adding to it and saying, this is much better. How do we respond to the argument from the theonomist that bestiality is not repeated in the New Testament? Well, it doesn't have to be in order for us to still believe it's a sin. And I think this is the third approach to our whole question of ethics, and that is to say that the New Testament Scriptures are the final authority, not only authority. They are the full authority. They are newer, but they don't contradict the old, meaning that the old is wrong. It adds to... Now, the New Testament Scriptures and the New Covenant canon of conduct is not a new old covenant. And I I have some friends, I wish they were on the other side, but unfortunately they're on my side, (laughs) Who, who have a new Old Testament. I know some people who hold New Covenant theology who don't understand it, and they're the worst legalists in the world, in just a different sense. Life under the new covenant is not basically a list-oriented way to live. It's not saying it doesn't have rules, but it doesn't reduce it to the way it was under the nation of Israel. There you had codified what to wear, what to eat, when to get up, when to light a fire. The whole thing was list-oriented. Why? Because they were children under age. And we are sons who are grown up. If the Old Covenant lists ten things which are sexual sins, the New Covenant doesn't have to list all of those same ten. It can list three. It can list five. Once it endorses the list, it endorses all ten. You understand what I'm saying? In Lewisburg, when I lived there, they were going to make a waste dump hazardous material and they were screaming from all over the place and and what they what they do is they they find communities where they don't have zoning laws and our community didn't have a strong enough zoning law but we did have a law that says that you couldn't put a waste hazard dump near anything any place where there was a group of people that had to be moved quickly such as and then they said hospital old age home, nursing home, and, and the schools, primary schools. So this But they never said prisons. And we have a prison, <laughs> the Lewisburg uh, Federal Penitentiary. And so they said, well, it doesn't say, doesn't say prison, so therefore it doesn't apply to us. Well, <laughs> do prisons have a situation where it would be difficult to move a lot of people real quick? So it doesn't have to say prison if the parameters are clear. And so in the Old Testament scriptures, you don't have to have bestiality mentioned in the New Testament if the parameters in the Old clearly define it as immorality. You understand what I'm saying? Now let's go back again to Leviticus 19. Were all of these things... Important to a Jew? Yes. Was whether or not he cut his beard just as important as whether he loved his neighbor as himself? Did you ever notice when you read Leviticus 19 and you get down to verse 18? Thou shalt not avenge nor bear grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There's no indication that you're coming to a biggie. You know, get ready, folks, because I'm about ready to give you the second greatest commandment in all of the scriptures. You don't have that. In fact, we're, we're, we're rather amazed that our Lord picked it out as the second greatest commandment because there's nothing in the context to seem to indicate it would be. And it was no more important to a Jew in the way he lived than the rest of these things. Can you imagine a, a Jew's neighbor Asking him why he lived the way he lived. Why do you cut your hair the way you do? Why, why, why do you plant your garden different than anybody? Never saw anybody live the way you do. I mean, the way you dress and you won't light a fire on, on Saturday. What? You're, I never met anybody. like. Why do you live so differently? Because God told me to. <laughs> and that's all he had. All he had was God told him to and did he live totally different what is sanctification it is being different being separated and what was god doing through this whole thing and remember corinthians tells us that these things are written for our learning we are to learn something from them and you remember in second corinthians chapter 6 wherefore come out from among them and touch not the unclean thing What's in Paul's mind? Does he see that whole Old Testament system? Absolutely. But is he telling us to go back and learn which food is clean and which food is unclean? No. He's saying, be a separated people. And you are to be different in the way that you live, but you don't demonstrate that by whether or not you wear a tie, Especially one as colorful as this. By the way, that's a Rice limbo tie. I did not buy it. I'm going to write him a letter and say, I think you are a crook for charging $50 for a tie, but I must give the devil his due. I've never worn a tie that got as much attention. The first time I wore it, we went to a restaurant, and the, the girl who was the hostess, she felt it, and she says, "My, that's a beautiful tie." The waitress came over, she said something about it. When I paid the bill, the lady at the cash register said, said something about it. But I still wouldn't buy one. That's I had to give it to) me. Still on the same earth, man. <laughs> All right All right. So we can take 2 Corinthians and say God was teaching a nation how to live separately, but he was teaching them as if they were immature. And that's the way you teach children, with rules from top to bottom. And the Jew, from the time he got out of bed till he went to bed at night, his life was controlled with rules. He had a book, man. He could look in the index and say, what about this situation? What about this situation? The New Testament does not present morality like that. doesn't mean it doesn't have any rules. It doesn't mean it have an absence. No, no, no. But the emphasis of the New Testament is, first of all, you've been given the Spirit of God as the pedagogue. You have the law written in your heart. You have a whole new motivation. And you're treated as sons where you apply this, this way, this, this way. That's the whole essence of growing up. Now we're not children; we're grown sons. There's a hermeneutical principle, seems to me, in the New Testament—I mean, the Scriptures—that gives us first that which is natural, then that which is spiritual. And oftentimes there will be things that will have a twofold understanding. For instance, when when God promised Abraham a son, the Book of Hebrews, chapter six, verse eighteen, tells us that he persevered in faith and received that promise. Yet Hebrews eleven, including Abraham says that these all died in faith, not having received the promise. And so it's obvious that that promise of that son, that seed, was not just that boy Isaac, but was also Jesus Christ himself. They're both there. I think you have the same thing in Samuel, when when God was promised to raise up David's seed to sit in his throne. And then he says, if he disobeys, I'll not take my promise from him. Acts 2 tells us that seed was Christ, but also that seed was very obviously Solomon. They're both there. And I don't think we can use the one to overthrow the other. But back again to this idea of ceremonial and moral. Let me ask you a question. Was circumcision a moral or was it a ceremonial commandment? (laughs) Well, Well, it's obvious they're ceremonial. But it's also obvious she didn't do it. She got killed. Right? We come over to the Galatians and Paul says circumcision, uncircumcision, who cares? Abraham couldn't say that. And Moses couldn't say that. Go back to Genesis 17, where God made the covenant with Abraham. And we won't get into the disputable parts. This is a passage that both the dispensations and the covenant theologians use, both of them. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generation for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. An everlasting covenant to be their God and an everlasting covenant that they will possess this land as an everlasting possession. Verse 9 and 10, or verse 10, This is my covenant that you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your poor skin. It shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and thee and he that is eight days old, and so on. Verse 13, he that's born in thy house and he that is bought with money needs to be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant, and the uncircumcised man whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. And the thing that's important for what we're talking about here today is that the sign that is circumcision, stands for the whole covenant. And that's why it is so serious. Here is a simple ceremonial token, a simple ceremonial act. And yet that act stands for the whole relationship, stands for the whole covenant, to the place that there's death for not imposing this sign on your child. Capital punishment. Now, do you have capital punishment for, for breaking ceremonial signs? See, there is no such thing as this idea of ceremonial and moral when you come to something like this. When God says do something, it's moral. You don't look at the nature of it. You look at did he command it. And when God says do this or you're a dead man, don't argue about whether it's moral, ceremonial, or civil, do it. A moral obligation can be attached to anything, even how you plant your food and how you plant your garden. Now, how important are these so-called ceremonial tokens? Well, how important was this one? Remember when Moses was coming down to deliver the children of Israel and the scriptures in Exodus chapter 4 said God was going to kill him. And Zephyr took a stone and circumcised Moses' son. She knew what to do. Apparently they had some arguments about this. And apparently she wasn't willing to have it done. But when she saw Moses ready to die, she all of a sudden changed her mind and she knew what to do. And she had that boy circumcised. Or not had him circumcised, she circumcised him. Why was God going to kill him? because here's the man who is delivering the children of Israel because of the promise made to Abraham, and he's not even wearing, I mean, his son is not wearing the very covenant sign. That's how important signs are. You don't get into the idea of civil and moral, even though Paul can take this and say, look, it's nothing but a useless ceremony. You want to have your children circumcised? Go ahead, but don't do it as a religious rite. But back there, it was as moral as could be because of what it stood for. See, this helps you understand why that guy was stoned to death for just picking up a couple of sticks. That was the worst possible sin that man could have committed because the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant. It, the Sabbath is no more moral than circumcision is moral. They're both nothing but ceremonies. But when they are the signs of covenants, then they become the most important part of the covenant. The most important of the Ten Commandments was the Sabbath. And that's why that man was stoned to death. That was the same as spitting in the communion cup. That's what he did. That was the same as if I took that ring off and threw it at my wife and walked out the door. That ring is a token of... It's a sign of a covenant, and it stands for the whole covenant. And that's what Moses was doing. He was denying the covenant. That's what Moses, that's what the man who picked up sticks was doing. He was denying the covenant. By the way, this is a side effect. I think when Jesus said this, do in remembrance of me and took the communion cup, <clears throat> and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, this do in remembrance of me. I think he was deliberately, consciously contrasting himself with the old. This, instead of remembering the seventh day, do in remembrance of me and my work of creation, as opposed to the work of creation in the old. The old commemorated the work of God the Creator, and that covenant had a sign, the Sabbath. <clears throat> And he says, this is the new creation. This do in remembrance of me. And this is the Father's greatest work. After he finished his first creation, he rested. And he rested in his creation to enjoy his creation. Didn't rest because he was tired. He rested in his creation, but his rest was very quickly ended because sin entered the world. And now the very creation which God said was very good, he has to look upon it as cursed. And he came out of his retirement and began to work again. And he sent his son to finish that work. And the whole motif of the the New Testament scriptures, I came to do the work of my father because he's back to work. And when he said in the cross it's finished, he's talking about the work my father gave me to do. It's finished and the communion service is the commemoration of that work. And we remember him and what he did in our place. Now it seems to me we can be hypocritical sometimes without our realizing it. And I think covenant theologians are just a bit hypocritical when it comes to the Sabbath. Because they will thunder that the Sabbath is a moral commandment, it's always in force. But we say, well, where is its continuity in the New Testament? Where, where is it brought over into the New Testament? Because it seems to me you don't have much continuity. First of all, you've changed the day from the 7th to the 1st. And you've changed the reason for observing it from creation to the resurrection of Christ. And the worst thing you've done is you've dropped all the rules. Because that commandment had specific rules. Don't light a fire on the Sabbath. If you do, you'll be put to death, Exodus 35. No choice. No choice. So we say, well, what's the moral equity of lighting a fire in the New Testament Scriptures? What's the the continuity of this over here? What do we put people to death for today? And all of a sudden, we discover that this absolute moral commandment has no rules. It's up to your Christian liberty. Can I take my wife out to dinner on Sunday? Well, that's up to your Christian liberty. You don't put absolute commandments of God under Christian liberty. Absolute commandments are to be obeyed. If you want to have fun, just ask a preacher who thunders about the Sabbath, what must somebody do in your congregation before you'll discipline them as a Sabbath breaker? And you'll have fun because they wouldn't discipline anybody because they believe in Christian liberty and they don't want to be legalists. We say, wait a minute, that guy who was stoned to death for picking up sticks, that wasn't a bunch of legalists that stoned him to death. If the Sabbath is a moral commandment, believe it, but also punish the people who break it the same as you would somebody who committed adultery. My friend William Osterman was in Canada last year and he invited a Reformed Baptist pastor for supper. And he agreed to go, and he said, By the way, I don't believe the Sabbath is a moral commandment, so you're eating with a Sabbath-breaker who has broken one of the commandments. And the man smiled and he said, That's okay. And then he said, Well, would you eat with me if I broke the seventh commandment and had two wives? And the man got angry. <laughs> so you see, it isn't a question of whether you keep the commandments, it's which ones that you keep. The whole problem, I think, in this idea of sanctification has to do with whether we believe that the grace of God has a power of its own. And when Titus says, The grace of God hath appeared to all men, teaching us, teaching us, does the grace of God teach? Does it have a power to teach? Not just to motivate, but to actually teach. Does the gospel clearly define to one who understands it right and wrong Absolutely, and so when we come over into this new content, it's not uh, the new covenant. It's not just that the content is grace instead of a law list. It's not just that the appeal is to gratitude and not just to duty, and it's not just that the the motivation is love not fear. It's not that the old is bad and the new is good. The old was good. It was good and holy and just. The whole thing is that the old was, as I said yesterday, it's like the little thing you buy for your kids that has no batteries included. No batteries included. And that was the whole question, the whole problem with everything in the old. There was no battery included. There was no new heart. There was no Holy Ghost indwelling the hearts of God's people. The old is a shadow But thank God for the shadows. It's better than nothing. Don't downplay it. Because the shadow proves there is a reality. But don't live in the shadow when the reality has come. You don't look into the shadows to find out what you need to know and believe and live now. You look into the full page. The old is the ABCs. We have the textbook. We don't look at the pictures now to learn. We look at the text. A classic example of what we're trying to say is 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 an instance in in New England, the New England theocracy. And and this is what people would like to do today. And one of the strongest movements in Christianity would like to do this. And this whole idea of, of wedding church and state and using the state and the state's sword to accomplish our goals, we better really be careful John Cotton was a New England Puritan, and uh, they ran Roger Williams out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and he went to Rhode Island. And then he went to England in order to get the patent rights to buy Rhode Island from the Indians. The Westminster Confession of Faith was written between 1643 and 1646. And Roger Williams hit England in order to buy the, get to right to buy the island, Rhode Island, on 1644-45. So that means that while the Westminster Confession of Faith is being written, he comes from the New World. There was within the Westminster Confession, um, within the Westminster Assembly, a small group of people who were Congregationalists. One of the conditions that the Scottish Parliament made before they would enter into a helping the English Parliament against the king was that there would be one unified religion for all of the British Isles. And the Westminster, Confession, the Westminster Confession was that document that was formulated by the Westminster Assembly. And it was obvious from the very beginning it was going to be Presbyterianism. And uh, Richard Nye and uh, Thomas Goodwin and a few others were arguing, hey, we believe everything. Why should we divide over church government? But of course, they were fighting for their life, more or less, you see. And uh, a guy named Gillespie and Goodwin was writing tracts back and forth. And along comes Roger Williams. And Gillespie got a hold of Roger Williams' And he told him of his episodes with John Cotton and the New England Congregationalists, how they ran him out of Massachusetts Bay Colony over liberty of conscience. Cotton didn't believe it was liberty of conscience. But anyhow, Gillespie starts to use Mr. Williams. And he says to Mr. Goodwin, the Congregationalist, You're all for having liberty of conscience when you're in the minority, but why don't you, Congregationalists, show it over in the New World? when you're in the majority. And that's the thing that forced John Cotton to answer a book that Roger Whitten, Roger Williams had written against him. It's called The Bloody Tenet. And uh, John Cotton responded with, The bloody tenant washed white in the blood of the Lamb. But the thing that forced him to do this was the things from his brethren in England. They said, look, you can't persecute people with this. Government sword for breaking the first tablets of the law, only the second tablets. And certainly, you can't put people to death for breaking the first table of the law, only the second table of the law. And and this is John Cotton's response. And uh, if you'd like a copy of this, I can I can get you a copy because we have copies of the letters which are written. And this is his argument. Now listen carefully. Ceremonial laws were generally typical, but not so Moses and his judicials, that is, his judicial laws, especially those which had in them moral equity. And that word moral equity is the big key. What is moral equity for today of something in the old? And what I'd like to ask people today is what's the moral equity of lighting fire and getting killed for it because that's the thing that they won't deal with. And I can understand the moral equity. To me, the moral equity is spiritual. And I read all that, don't do any work, not even so much as light a fire. I hear Romans chapter 4, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly. And I see that man picking up sticks. And I see all of those detailed laws of what you can't do. I see... You can't add anything to Christ. You rest alone in Him. See, No works, rest, no works, rest. That's what the Sabbath is. No, no one thing ever depicted the cross and the doctrine of salvation by grace as clearly as that Sabbath commandment. That pushed you to faith, especially the 50th year, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, the Jubilee year. Boy, that was grace. Just imagine if you were head over heels in debt and you knew tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock all the debts were going to be canceled. You were going to get your farm back. Man, you'd be up at 6 o'clock in the morning waiting for that ram's horn to blow. Woo! Free, debt free. That's Jubilee. We live in Jubilee. We live in the Sabbath. Oh, get, don't get bogged down with all those things and miss Christ in the Sabbath. Let me go on. It is moral equity that blasphemers and apostate idolaters seducing others to idolatry should be put to death. But the external equity of that judicial law, Moses, <clears throat> was of moral force and binds all princes to express that zeal and indignation both against blasphemy in such as fall under their just power and against seduction to idolatry. Did God command? The government in Israel, too, put to death false teachers, false prophets, seducing, absolutely. Has God changed? Does he still hate those same things? Therefore, it cannot be truly said that the Lord Jesus never appointed the civil sword for a remedy in such cases. For he did expressly appoint in the Old Testament nor did he ever abrogate it in the new. Did he punish evil spirits in the old? Did he punish the fortune teller in the old? Yes. Has he changed? No. Did he appoint the sword back there? Yes. Is that his church? Yes. Is it still appointed? Yes. The reason of the law, which is the life of the law, is of eternal force and equity in all ages. The reason is moral, that is, of universal and perpetual equity, to put to death an apostate, seducing, idolater, or heretic who seeks to thrust away the souls of God's people from the Lord their God. God hasn't changed. Did ever any apostle or evangelist make the judicial of Moses concerning life and death ceremonial or typical? Show me in the New Testament one time. Time was when human inventions in God's worship were accounted superstition, but now human invention and doctrine went past as current evangelical divinity. It is true the Son of Righteousness has set up another church, ministry, and worship, but did he ever set up another civil righteousness or a magistrate to walk by another rule of righteousness than that which God gave by Moses? If it be true that Christ gave no express ordinance, precept, or precedence of killing men by material swords for religion's sake, it is also true that neither did he for any breach of civil justice, nor for murder, nor for adultery. In other words, where in the New Testament does Jesus ever tell the magistrate how to use the sword? Who should be put to death? And then his argument is this. If you cannot find in these New Testament scriptures a rule of civil society, a way to government, things that should be punished with death, if you can't find any, why won't you use the ones that God has already given to his church? And remember, Israel is the church. And he got you over a barrel. Is that right? Right? You got no choice but to wed the church and state. Since God laid this charge upon magistrates in the Old Testament to punish seducers, and the Lord Jesus never took this charge off in the New Testament, who is this dissenter, Roger Williams, that he should account Paul himself or an angel from heaven a curse that should leave this charge still upon magistrates which God laid on Christ and never took off? Do you see the argument? If God did it back here, either you do it over here or you show me something over here that says don't do it or else you believe God's changed and sin has changed. and Magistrates don't have their same power. And then, of course, when they said, well, you can't kill people because they preach false doctrine, Cotton responded and said, look, if somebody came into our village and he was selling milk that was poisoned and killing our babies, would we put him to death? Of course we would. He says, which is more important, that baby's soul or that baby's body? And when somebody comes in here peddling doctrine that's going to send that baby to hell, we're going to put him to death. And we ought to, if we live under the old covenant. But you see, the church has never been given that authority. The only weapons that God's given you to get done what he's called you to do is his word and prayer. He's never given you a steel sword. He's never given you the right to by force or coercion. And see, that's what the New England Puritans and the whole Puritan era missed. They missed the power of grace to really force a man's conscience. John Cotton believed that he believed in liberty of conscience. He says, man is not at liberty to believe a lie. Liberty of conscience is liberty to believe the truth. But he doesn't have liberty to believe a lie, and it is my duty to force his conscience to believe the truth because I love him. That's fine, but what is the truth that we are forced to teach? Well, here it is in our creed. (laughs) Here it is, it's all laid out, and we will use this creed to force you, and that's where we get in trouble. We have to protect some people that we ought not to have to protect because we have to protect conscience, period. Is that right? And There's some people that we would like to shoot, but we aren't allowed to shoot. (laughs) There's some things we would like to stop that we can't stop because we can't use the steel sword. All we can do is persuade with the truth and pray for the Holy Ghost of God to come and open the hearts of men. In our own personal life, we may come to conclusions and discipline our life, and we may have lots of rules that we apply to ourselves because we believe the principles of God's Word lead us there, and we can live under these rules, and because we love God, we do this because we love God, but we can't make those rules for other people unless we have a specific text of Scripture. Christian liberty is a tough doctrine, and it's much easier to claim it for yourself than it is to exercise it with other people. Sanctification for a Christian is being like Jesus Christ. And there was a book called, what was it called, Being Like Him, or what was a book called? In His Steps. And evangelicals mocked it and ridiculed it, and it may have some points in it that you don't agree, but in the end, it was basically right. And the Christian does ask himself, what would Jesus Christ do? And if he lives in the light of the New Testament and is saturated with the life of Jesus Christ and the grace of God as he understands it in Christ, that's going to help him in a lot, a lot of areas. Is that right? Amen.